Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Taura, ye soda one tabamunchantu satang. So this afternoon, oh God, it's our occasion to uh, reflect on Dhamma. So what is being said is is not uh, doctrinal, but suggestive. Uh, looking inward, the important thing about Buddha Dhamma is that the direction is inward rather than seeking. Seeking it as something you'll find through the senses, through the outward objects of sense. So this, uh, at this time, in the media and the world news and so forth, the the wars, the endless uh, struggle with different groups who are strongly identifying with nationality, with political positions, goes on endlessly. You know, we think hopefully that wars will end and people will be rational, sensible, and uh, we'll just learn how to live together, get along and understand each other. So we try to use negotiation, way of speaking and talking to each other, trying to, or sometimes we don't really listen to each other, we just listen at each other. Because we tend to be very attached to a particular view about peace, how things should be. And so if the other opposite party or person doesn't agree with our particular view, then, you know, this why, what can we really talk about except to endlessly converse to find some compromise? So reflection, reflective awareness is observing this this tendency that we all have to hold on to views and opinions, concepts. And uh, it's not like we're saying you shouldn't have views or opinions. It's not another view of the Buddhas that we shouldn't have concepts, views or opinions. But the reflective ability of meditation is to observe the attachment to concepts, views, and opinions. This grasping of them, this kind of blind, ignorant holding to what we consider right views or my views or the best views or how we can criticize others because they've got wrong views. So right and wrong, good and bad, true and false, all these are words that we acquire after we're born about particular, about experiences that we have, how we're conditioned to perceive ourselves as a physical body, as a person, as a member of a a family, 
as a social identity, racial identity, how we attach to the gender identities. And then we form our worldview from our particular attachments. Of course, ideally, why can't we just be tolerant towards each other, try to understand, use our rational mind to figure out the best way to deal with life with all problems, be sensible, rational, reasonable. But those of us who have looked inward, spent many, much of our life looking inward at the way things are, rational, rationality is, a, is another view. And what we're actually experiencing in our life, daily life, is, our, is, a, is the sensory experiences that we have through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, our emotions. So this, uh, this is, and so I, I, said many times, this is a sensory realm, it's about, it's all about feeling. It's not a reason, feelings aren't reasonable, but they are the way they are. So rational feelings about rationality is being sensible, reasonable, about being kind, compassionate, are all very lovely ideas in the mind. And, and when we're very much uh, attached to being reasonable and knowing how things should be as, as an ideal, we sometimes don't know what we're really feeling about anything. So we can build a whole illusory realm of ideals and then wonder why the world is the way it is. Why can't everybody in the Sangha just get along and love each other? Why is there so many conflicts, personal conflicts, even in a, in a select organization such as the Sangha here at Amravati? So, you know, this is a good question. Ideally, you know, the Sangha is the one who, those who practice well and, and with right understanding. But those are words, beautiful words, but the way it is is like this. So, so sometimes we, we, you know, many, much of our life is, is observing oftentimes feelings, emotions, that are not, have no rational, no rational point to them, just reactions we have to experience in terms of the weather, in terms of each other, in terms of Buddhism, politics, and on and on like that. We, we, uh, you know, we. How, we do, how do we really feel about Buddhism or Christianity or Islam? You know, so we, we have opinions maybe about Christianity and Islam and Buddhism. And opinions are, are conditions that come and go. Change. You, you can't carry an opinion around all day because the conditions for your daily life are changing all the time. But whenever the conditions for your particular bias or prejudice arise, then that's what happens. And then we, we care about it. Because if we have, you know, that we should all get along and, and be compassionate and kind and understanding to each other, 
that opinion is is a very beautiful opinion. But how do we really feel when the conditions for being feeling upset, angry, confused, worried, guilty? What do we do then? You know, because these are emotions. And whose emotions are they? You know, so this this word, this question word of who is a good way to investigate experience as we as we are experiencing life through the, this form, this body, and the senses. Who really cares? Who cares? Who is afraid? Who is jealous? Who is upset or angry? And so when we, when we talk to each other, we can say, so-and-so is very upset and angry today. We, we think of a, a, an individual person, a form, a male or a female, and that, that very idea that somebody that we know is upset or angry, you know, that gets around. As we think of that person, then we think of them as angry or upset or if too emotional or unreasonable. So we're caught in, the, in this vortex of thoughts, views, opinions, concepts that we are very, which we don't reflect on, we don't understand, we're just caught in the momentum of habit patterns that we've developed through our lives. <clears throat> so like when we talk about sangsara as the opposite of nirvana, and samsara vata, the cycle of changing conditions, of habits. All habits are acquired. All our habits, all our thinking, our language habits, our emotional habits, our views and opinions, our identities, our prejudices, biases, and so forth are acquired. <clears throat> so it's something acquired from something else, like conventions, identity with conventions, identity with conditions, <coughs> with concepts, with views and opinions. When we, we see, when we feel that we are somebody with viewpoints, opinions, what's right and wrong, good and bad, then we're creating this sense of personal identity with, with things that we've acquired after we're born. So what is it that we don't create? What is it that is completely natural here and now that that isn't about personal identities, social, religious, about right and wrong, good or bad, is, and what we all share, what really unites us, what is unitive, universal, is conscious awareness. Because that's one thing you, you don't acquire it's not, it's not religious even, it's not a, the property of one religion. It's natural, it's here and now, Dhamma, the way things are. So in meditation, we begin to realize this for ourselves. Because what I'm doing now is speaking words 
giving you, and you're listening to what I'm saying, so it does affect you in some way or another. If you come here on this afternoon to listen to a Dhamma talk, then there's interest or duty. It can be very personal or very impersonal, interested. What is it like right now? For each one of you, what is the, the feeling of the, the mood of this moment? And when you look inward, when you start just observing with mindfulness, awareness, conscious awareness, you don't create anything. You're not creating a view or opinion. You're not manufacturing anything. It's not even Buddhist. It's natural. The way, way it really is, it's reality itself that we begin to recognize or realize it's always present no matter what state of mind, what state of health we happen to be in at the moment. All those conditions arise and cease in consciousness. And does consciousness arise and cease? You know, so when we're not conscious, then these forms are not conscious forms, they're called corpses. So the body itself is an acquired state. The physical form, male or female, black or white, it's a, is an acquisition. It arises and ceases according to other conditions in consciousness. But what doesn't arise and cease? In the here and now, no matter what state of mind you're in, what you're feeling is awareness. And so this awareness, instead of being aware of objects, like being aware of the door, the shrine, the Buddha Rupa, then you're sending your, your, your awareness to objects, which we are conditioned to do. We're conditioned to send consciousness through the senses, through the objects of sense, as the real world. The real world is what the objects that we experience as objects of eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So the real world as most people conceive it, is not real. It's, you know, we can call it illusory. It, it manifests, it disappears, it comes and goes. In terms of direct experience for, uh, in each individual being, whatever you feel about the world, as you perceive it, if you see the world the real world is the objects of your senses. What you see and hear, smell, that's the real world. That's very illusory and dependent on other conditions. It's always changing. So this emphasis on impermanence, anicca, to contemplate anicca, So sending, always seeing your life as a relation to, through the body to other individuals, to the society you live in, to the Sangha, to people of other religions, nationalities, races, and so forth. These are acquired conditions that, that we identify with, that we have opinions and views about. 
And this identity, this clinging identity to illusions is why the world is the way it is. Why all the problems of wars, conflicts, disagreements, problems in marriages between men and women, between different nationalities, racial differences, all these of what we ident what we identified with these what is really unreal, illusory, and changeable, and the ultimate reality is never recognized, and yet it's here and now. So the world is an illusion, the world of the senses, the objects of senses. It doesn't mean we don't experience illusions, we do experience through the senses. So on a sunny day, and we see the spring flowers and leaves on the trees and so forth, we feel a certain way. <clears throat> So that's experience through sensory, through the senses. We experience, you know, pleasure and pain and so forth through the senses, through the body, through the mind. But through all the rising and ceasing, manifesting and disappearing of conditions, whatever they might be through the senses, through the, through the emotions, through the mind, what is always, what, how could these possibly manifest? How could a sunny day at Amaravati manifest if there was no consciousness? There was nothing conscious to observe a, a sunny spring day at Amaravati. So who is it that observes, you know? And we tend to think, well, I, Ajahn Sumedho, I went for a walk this morning around on a beautiful sunny morning, and I was admiring the spring flowers, leaves on the trees. And so that's conventional reality. And so in terms of convention, we, it's fair enough. It's uh, how we talk to each other, explain and, and communicate through words. But what is really behind where the sunny day can, could not possibly manifest if there was no conscious awareness. So in, in monastic life, for example, samana life, you know, we take this very personally, the conventional forms very personally, and we form strong views about right and wrong, good and bad, strong moral views and so forth that we acquire. We have views about Theravada Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism, not to mention other religions. And so when we are caught in these views and opinions, they are not that they're right or wrong, but they are what they are. They manifest, they appear and disappear in consciousness. Where consciousness doesn't appear and disappear, it's here and now. And when we talk about mindfulness or awareness, conscious awareness, in this sense of sati sampatanya, in Pali, these words sati sampatanya, here and now, then the views, opinions, you know, still 
rise and cease, but our refuge is no longer in the view or the opinion that we're blindly attached to. We're liberated from the limitations we place on ourselves through our ignorance of Dhamma, of ultimate reality, of conscious awareness. So that's why in the first noble truth, the Buddha said there is suffering, is pointing to suffering as we create suffering through this ignorance of Dhamma, of ultimate reality. And as ultimate reality, is it personal? You know, is it, is it a person? Is it like a god? Is it a, a, some kind of overpowering spirit in the universe? Is it the creator of the universe? You know, so this, this is, you know, the world, God didn't, you know, if we believe in God as a concept, and we don't know what God really is as a reality, then we have very rigid views about right and wrong and good and bad, about other religions. We're oftentimes informed by others, by preachers, by teachers, about what's right and wrong, good and bad, what's, what God is. And so these are, these are, can be very, uh, you know, can be skillful or unskillful, but whatever their quality may be, they, they appear and disappear. So in meditation, we're really witness to the presence and absence of conditions. It's learning to let go of the world we create. It doesn't mean we annihilate it or we're not trying to get rid of it or judge it, but understand it, that dukkha or suffering has causes. It's not permanent. It's not personal. We can create, we think of my suffering, the, of my life, the, all that I've been through. And uh, I can tell you all kinds of stories about how much I've suffered. And that might make a good biography. People are interested about my suffering. And do I suffer anymore after all these years as a monk? So, you know, people want to write my biography. <laughs> and, but I, you know, after all these years, who wants to identify with the past, with memories that arise and cease, that appear and disappear, according to other conditions. So the conventions we have, you know, these Buddhist conventions that we're using uh, in this Theravada school of Buddhism are very practical conventions. They are only conventions though. They're not ultimate reality, but they're pointers to that. So in meditation or bhavana, in meditation, we, we're not seeking nirvana as a person anymore, trying to get enlightened as a person. We begin to see, you know, just through the first fetter of Sakyaditi, the ego, can the ego ever get enlightened? Can my ego, no matter how devoted I am to meditation, years I spent in, in uh, the robes, is that ego ever going to get enlightened? 
So it's like observing the ego. It's not that you get rid of the ego, that I don't have an ego. I've gotten rid of it, so I'm just a bland something or other. So I still appear as a person, can respond to conditions as they happen through the conventions that we have developed in, the, in our life here at the monastery. In this society, as we experience living here in, the, in England, is like this. So when we, we might aspire as persons, as individual personalities to attain Nibbana, to realize the deathless, to become enlightened and an arahant, but can the ego ever become anything other than what it is that's something conditioned, changing, impermanent, and not self? So we keep reflecting on that. We stop believing that we are what we think we are with the identities that we've acquired, no matter how beatific they might be or how guilty or negative we, views we have about ourselves are just views, concepts that we bind ourselves to. And then that limits our life to live according to, to reactivity to experience, not understanding it, not learning from it, but just caught in, in uh, habitual responses, reactions, to praise and blame, success and failure. So the unicity or the oneness that we all share is in consciousness. That's not personal, I can't claim Consciousness is some kind of personal acquisition or the result of being a monk for decades. I become more conscious. Even in my most deluded days, I was, the consciousness was the same. The delusions were conditions that come and go, arise and cease according to other conditions. So then the question is, can, can individuals become, get it, become enlightened? Can people still get enlightened in, in the year 2022? And I've heard all kinds of views and opinions about enlightenment and who's enlightened and who isn't. And who people believe is enlightened Arahant and then others who, monks, nuns that are not enlightened. But can the forms become enlightened? Because enlightenment is here and now, is realizing that our true nature is impersonal, is not self. Not an individual physical form, not a male or female, not black or white, There's no identity to it. And this includes everything, the whole, all things that arise and cease, born and die, are in consciousness. Whether it's the sun and moon, the Deva realms, the Brahma realms, the angels, the devils, the pretas, the hungry ghosts, the unity is in consciousness where the diversity is in forms that arise and cease. How could forms possibly 
exist if there was no consciousness? How could space possibly be if there was no consciousness, if there was no, no consciousness involved in it? What is foremost in the six elements, consciousness, then space? So consciousness is not a personal property. So in the Pali, when we when I've used this term Winyanang Anidasanang Anandang Sapado Pabang, Winyana is consciousness, invisible, infinite, being everywhere, being all around. Consciousness through the senses that we strongly, that create this idea of what we are conscious of through senses, through the objects of these forms, our eyes, we're conscious of objects. I'm conscious of this microphone when I look at it. It enters consciousness. If I just am conscious of the microphone, you know, I become hypnotized by it. I have to shut everything else out, even in, in a, the sala filled with people listening to this talk. And in concentration practices, you, you send the consciousness through outward toward an object, dismissing all other forms, conditions around, where conscious awareness includes it's complete. It's not focused on one object that we see or hear. So when we're aware of suffering, you know, we see it, suffering is very personal. If we understand suffering, when we investigate it, who suffers? Who is it that suffers? Does your personality suffer? Is it your body that suffers? Is it your, what you, you know, the environment around you? Is you suffering from the environment? Through conflicts, through emotional problems? You know, we take suffering very personally, but in the First Noble Truth, suffering is to be understood, not to be, get, to get rid of it, try not to suffer, but to observe it, to relate to suffering with wisdom rather than with ignorance and habit. So who suffers? And so when you ask this question uh, on meditation retreats, uh, most individuals say, oh, I suffer a lot, you know. It's, I sit there and meditate and then my mind goes into all kinds of miserable states, uh, restlessness, worry. I try to stop it, try to get rid of it, try to tranquilize my mind. So I'm doing everything I can to get rid of this suffering so I can get some tranquility and peace. Well, that very struggle, resisting suffering, trying to get rid of it, blaming it on others, is not understanding it, it's just reacting to it. So mindfulness, conscious awareness, it's aware of how we react to physical discomfort or restlessness or boredom or any kind of emotional habits that arise during our daily life. We're not trying to get rid of it or blame it on anything, but just be the knower of it. It's like this. 
So suffering does. The first noble truth will take you to non-suffering. If you really understand this basic teaching, so that's why the Buddha, after his enlightenment, gave his first sermon was the statement, there is suffering, it should be understood. So understanding suffering doesn't mean that suffering disappears, but there's no longer identity with suffering, with physical suffering, with emotional suffering, that sense of my suffering, my pain, my problems is, is seen through it. It's uh, memories of the past, the, the uh, attachment to the bodies that we identify with, attachment to our pasts, to the way we regard the future, the, the, the conditioned reactions we have to life in general as individuals. So this is very important in terms of meditation and reflection, investigation, who suffers, who cares, So the question, word question, who? Who am I? A question is always, it's good to question yourself because questions are not, don't, don't always provide clear answers, but they tend to open you to reflective awareness. And in, you know, in people, many Buddhists believe that they, they don't have enough accumulated virtues or barmis or God's grace to ever become enlightened. Most of us have heard that from others on retreats. The belief that they're not good enough or they've sinned too much in the past or on and on like that, so how we regard ourselves is based on this illusion of the, that I am the memories of the past, I am the physical form, I am this personality. I remember when I first went to live with Ajahn Chah, you know, I projected onto him, he probably never suffered like I do. You know, because I met him when he was already very advanced, very clear that he was nobody, that he wasn't an individual person. He never said that, but he, this impression of somebody, some individual, human individual that's so at ease with himself in the presence of so many problems in Sangha life, there's always problems and issues. And then I would project, well, Lumpo Chan never suffered probably in the same way I have. So that's the idea that he, he's uh, projecting this idea that he's enlightened on a body that I can see and hear is still sakyaditi, isn't it? I'm creating Ajahn Chah according to various conditions that I've acquired from the polytext, from the suttas, from Theravada Buddhist thinking patterns, or from my own interpretations of those. So this is, you know, then we, you, well, if Lung Po Cha can get enlightened, maybe I can do it. So there's a, you know, this is, 
is an old created sense of he's not what I'm, I am. He's special, I'm ordinary. He's a, a master, an enlightened master. I'm a ignorant individual man. And these, what are these? These are words, concepts that you acquired through language, through grasping of languages and belief, religious beliefs, scriptural teachings, and that's the conventional world that we create, that we just create out of habit. And it's illusory, it's not ultimate reality. So any, any view of yourself as a permanent individual, you know, is a belief, it's a condition that you create. It's not, it's not the way things are. In this past year, so many people I've known over the years have passed away. So, you know, then you, whenever I hear that somebody has died, you know, that I've known quite well for a long time, certain feeling arises. It's not that I'm indifferent to it and think, well, just the body dies and go through the, the, uh, the reasonable approach to it, what, how it really is, but aware of the feeling of sadness when you hear somebody you know has passed away. It's like this. So you don't become a zombie or kind of uh, just a totally unfeeling, unresponsive to the realities of experience through these forms. But you're no longer identified with the forms. You still feel in the same way and you, you still, in your thinking patterns, as you acquire wisdom, as wisdom manifests, through wise reflection on the way things are, then the critical faculty, using thought and all that as a way to make value judgments about oneself or the community or the world in general, no longer hold much weight, no longer, con you no longer convinced that that's what you're thinking or feeling is is really true, it is what it is. You know, so it's not about whether it's right or wrong, true or false, but whatever you're feeling out of hab habitual reactions to the birth and death experiences of these indi individual forms, you're aware of them, you're aware that they are reactions, that they come and go and change according to other conditions. So then I found it very important to recognize consciousness, space, and the four elements, earth, fire, water, and air, seeing that the forms, all these forms are earth, fire, water, and air. These bodies are, you know, when we analyze uh, through the, the polytext, these four elements, earth, fire, water, and air, we can relate that to the physical forms that we identify with. The solid element, the liquid element, the air element, the heat element, these are all about these forms. And they are born and they grow up, get old and die. Because earth, fire, water and air are like that. They arise and cease, they're not permanent. And they couldn't possibly arise if there was no space. 
So, you know, there could be no forms manifesting if there was no space. Then take that to consciousness. Space couldn't possibly be present if there's no consciousness. So in these six elements, consciousness is immeasurable. You can't find it. You can't objectify it. But it's your, the very ability we have to be aware here and now. So it's, it's you know, you're just not trying to find yourself as a form, as a condition, as a quality. You can identify with various achievements or accomplishments or lack of them, success or failure, and positions in the society. You can <clears throat> hold on to identities. But inevitably, when you get old, these identities change. You know, so old age is like this. It's not like, you know, it's not the experience of life isn't, this, you know, is different from what it was when I was younger. But the wisdom of understanding it is stronger. Understanding the way things are, suffering has been understood. The insight into the first noble truth takes you on to the causes of suffering, which take you to the cessation of suffering. And this, you, you, you know, you realize for yourself. We, you might appreciate the teachings, but they're still teachings. They're like directional signs. They're pointing. They're not doctrinal positions we take. You can't say the Buddha just taught suffering. Everything is suffering. Sometimes it, people interpret the first noble truth is everything is suffering. And that's the kind of, you know, misunderstanding of the of Buddha never said everything is suffering, is there is suffering, should be understood. So this is inviting us, encouraging us to look, to observe, to learn from the suffering of daily life, of the weather, of aging. of our identities. So insight is, you know, clearly stated in the Four Noble Truths. The third aspect of each Noble Truth is, is, is knowing for yourself. It's no longer just quoting scriptural teachings, no matter how wise the scriptural teachings might be, but it's through knowing this. This is perfect knowing, understanding, samaditi, right understanding, or perfect understanding, is available to us all. It's not because the first noble truth is a problem for every one of us. We're caught in this ignorant position of identity with the forms that we're conditioned to believe in, in as very personal. So ultimately, who really cares? Is there somebody that cares? Or is there just caring when conditions arise? So with this kind of questioning, it's a way of investigating 
our experience in, as individual forms. The conditions are not going to be the same for everybody. The external conditions are pretty much the same. You know, the forms that we've, we've, uh, are using, the Vinaya forms that we are available to us to use are no longer identities, personal identities, but helpful suggestions, a way of looking at habit patterns that we have of cultural conditioning, of social identities, and, and agreements about action and speech. But the real important thing is the Dhamma. Vina is just a useful convention tool, if used properly, to make life much more simple to observe the habit patterns that we're blindly attached to and we carry into this life when we ordain. You know, when, when I ordained in Thailand, I, I wasn't conditioned by Thai culture. So I brought my own cultural habits into a Buddhist monastery, Ajahn Chah's monastery, I was still, you know, very much, you know, part of the American cultural conditioning, social conditioning, Christian conditioning. So that was, you know, that was, you know, that it would, you know, arise in, in, a, in, a, in a setting that was not conditioned by Christianity or American cultural values. But Lung Po Cha's emphasis on awareness, conscious awareness, was so helpful to me that I could actually, you know, learn from the, my own conditioning as I tried to conform, you know, keeping the Vinaya was just about action and speech. So I learned how to conform to that physically and verbally as best I could. But then the uh, social identities, the way I reacted to the structures that I'm living with that I didn't understand very well, because they were very different from my own conditioning. But it's through this awareness of conditioning that you have the wisdom, that wisdom can operate in your life. Wisdom is available to all of us. It's our true nature. It's not like I have more wisdom than you do. Then that would be the ego again if I claim I'm much wiser than you are, would be Sakyaditi, would be the first fetter that prevents seeing clearly. As long as I identify myself in such a way, in a personal identification, it's, it doesn't, it can't get enlightened. Conceit, personal conceit has no possibility of being enlightened because it's a static form that we tend to operate from. It's dead, it is not alive, it's not real. But we can operate from these habitual ways of looking at life, and that's why there is, suffering is the first noble truth, because it's, it's everywhere. In modern life, in modern Britain, in Ethiopia, in Ukraine, in Russia. The British Parliament, American politicians, you know, it's all, suffering is very much the, the modus operandi that people operate from. Without realizing it. So this awakening or enlightenment is beginning to 
not be caught in the same old patterns blindly through our habitual blind attachment to phenomena, but seeing the suffering we create by that very attachment. So it's letting go of attachment, it's not getting rid of conditions, but relaxing, releasing your te the tension you create through strong identities with emotional habits, physical appearance, social position, because all these create, are the causes why this blind attachment is the very cause of suffering. So I offer this as a reflection for today.